Hello, everyone, and welcome to the False Nines. This is the 53rd episode of a bi-weekly footballing discussion. I am your host, Zach Pensack, alongside my friend, Adam Goffin. Adam, how are you doing today on this lovely Wednesday in Denver, Colorado? What's he, Zach? Everything's all weird footy. <laughs> no better eloquent way of putting it because you have hit the nail on the head. Everything is upside down in the Premier League. It's your classic four match in table. Uh, it looks like we're living in Stranger Things because we are in the upside down. We have Aston Villa <laughs> running for the title alongside Everton, other preseason title favorite. Uh, and we have Manchester United just trying to stay outside of the relegation zone. What a beginning to the season it's been. It's fantastic. When was the last time you looked at the league table and saw both Manchester clubs in the bottom half of the table? Oh, it must be. Oh, it has to be decades ago. It has to be well, well, well before Manchester City got bought and well, well, well before Manchester United had the reign on the Premier League. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's a bit of a weird one right now, but you know, I'm enjoying it. Something different, right? It's like when Leicester made their title push a few years ago. Um, having seen some different teams up there is a, is a welcome change of pace. It is. And so we have two teams who have yet to lose a game in the Premier League this season, respectively, actually have not dropped a point. Everton, top of the table, four wins in four matches. They have 12 points. And then Aston Villa, of all clubs, also have won three in a row. They've only played three matches, so they're three points behind Everton. But just the fact that they're in second in the table, having played a game less, is wildly impressive. Uh, From there, it's Leicester, Arsenal, Liverpool tied on points with Villa. And then we just spiral down to mid-table and lower-table mediocrity. But Adam, just before we jump into reviewing the matches from the weekend, anything in particular you want to mention when looking at the table? Um, I would just say, obviously, Everton and Villa being at the top is the main thing, right? So it feels like it's got this kind of 1980s tinge to it. It's been a while since we've seen those two teams up there. And Everton have a game in hand. They're equal on points with Leicester, Arsenal, Liverpool. But if they win, they go basically joint top of the league on with, with, four, with four games Villa. played and 12 points. V- Sorry, Villa, 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 Villa I'd yeah, say, yeah. but there's Everton. Everton already top of the league and doing exactly, fantastic. Yeah. But Villa, if they pick up that extra win, will be on 12 points too. So, I mean, they beat Liverpool. So who's to say that they can't beat anybody at that point? So we'll be digging into the Liverpool match in a moment. Uh, We'll be starting. So today, structure for today's pod, we'll be kind of switching up how we do this a little bit, uh, reviewing the matches from the weekend, but we'll be divvying it up into Saturday fixtures, Sunday fixtures, and then reviewing the final transfers that were done prior to the international window shutting. Um, And then bringing back an old segment, Armchair Pundits, which should be a fun one, wrapping up at 10 and 90. It's going, to be, it's going to be good, Adam. Uh, but so to, to stay on topic with Everton, let's start with them uh, from the Saturday fixtures. Uh, Everton continuing to roll. They're the only team to start the season. Four games unbeaten. They haven't dropped a point, as I mentioned. And this past weekend, defeating Brighton four goals to two. Now six goals for Dominic, Cal- Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Uh, Hamez looked fantastic. What do you take from that match, Adam? I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Calvert-Lewin is the man this season. He scored six goals already, joint top scorer along with Youngman Son this, this season. 
Uh, he's scoring inside and outside the box. I've noticed that his poacher instinct has actually dramatically improved this season. A lot of the goals he was scoring were kind of through balls or on the edge of the box last year, but he's scoring those ones on the edge of the six-yard box as well as beautiful takedowns and crisp finishes from the outside. He just seems to have upped his game. Ancelotti seems to have been coaching him well, and obviously, you know, he's 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 doing the business. Scored six goals so far in four games. Fantastic. And then you mentioned James Rodriguez as well. Seems to be pulling the strings in midfield. Seems to be a player that is settling into life in the Premier League without skipping a beat. A lot of international players come in and struggle to adapt. Not James. He's scoring. He's scored three on the season. He's assisting two. He's got two on the season. And that left foot is a thing of beauty, Zachary. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty great to be able to watch James kind of have this, you know, we're only four matches in, but it does feel like somewhat of a rebirth of James Rodriguez circa 2013-14 when he was really becoming that global superstar. Um, just a really well-composed team. It's the Everton team that fans have been waiting years to see that seems to have no visible weaknesses uh, around, I would say, besides one Jordan Pickford in net. <laughs> um, but I, to turn it over to Brighton, I, I think that besides that win against Newcastle, Brighton has had a very rough beginning to the season. Uh, those two James goals in particular on the weekend were pretty disappointing in my mind. Um, just let it, him ghost into the back post, almost carbon copies of one another those two goals. And um, yeah, it was, it was poor defending from Brighton across the pitch. I will say a, a really nice finish uh, by Basuma for that consolation goal that they got mm-hmm. in the final minute, but yep. um, tough for Brighton. Everton continues to roll though. I, I would like to hear what, what do you think of the form of Pickford? Because we, we do give Pickford a lot of slack here, but I think it's, it's starting to become a, a genuine concern for Everton. His, his performances as a blade. I think he's rightly being criticized, Pickford. Um, you, you know, we're seeing these errors crop up time and time again for him. And I think that that's probably the one area you mentioned, the one, one weakness in the team that Ancelotti obviously sees as well. Pickford, I think, has a lot of pressure on his shoulders. He came into a team that was kind of a mid-table team, and now they're a team that's really trying to kick on. Um, and, and as well as obviously having the pressure of the club scenario, he's also got other goalkeepers breathing down his neck in the England team. So I thought it was an astute piece of business uh, from Ancelotti in the, in the transfer window right before it closed. A little sneaky loan signing for Robin Olsen to come in as a backup from Roma. I thought that was Ancelotti letting Pickford know that his position isn't guaranteed in the team and that there is a competent goalkeeper, Swedish international, waiting in the wings to pick it up if he can't continue to or if he continues to make those sort of error, errors and mistakes. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very brilliant move from Ancelotti. You're right. You know, getting that sort of kind of safeguard in case this type of form continues. Um, I, I think that I think it was Gary Lineker on Match of the Day pointed out when assessing the Everton match that it, it's just somewhat puzzling that Pickford, who is uh, you know on the younger side but has quite a bit of experience in the Premier League at this point, that he still seems to let his emotions really really get to him. I, you saw you know when he dropped that very easy lofted ball to, to gift Neil Mopay the, the first Brighton goal. Pickford turned around and started kicking the post, was yelling at himself. And I think that's almost as concerning as his form on the pitch is, you know, the, the way in which he seems to really be his own worst enemy mentally. And that's mm-hmm. something you can't have with a world-class keeper. It's as simple as that. You know, you think of 
you know, the, the best keepers in the world from the last few years. You think of De Gea, uh, Hugo Lloris, even going back to Gianluigi Buffon and Allison. Not keepers that you really see show visible signs of anger on the pitch. It's more of a, you know, make a mistake and get over it. And I, I think that that's the biggest thing that Pickford needs to improve on. I think he needs to work on his maturity. Um, I think that's a big part of it. You're absolutely right. Well, that's how you right. sum it up, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's, you know, at this at this point, he's far enough into his career that, you know, mistakes happen. Goalkeeper, you could be 20, you could be 30, you could be 40 years old. You're still going to make mistakes. How you deal with them, I think, is the is the key here. And you're right. Pickford is very petulant in the way that he deals with these errors and, and criticizes himself. He needs to be doing that off the pitch, not on it. Mm-hmm. Well, so another team that uh, is, you know, kind of going through this, maybe a, a change uh, of the guard with goalkeeper is Chelsea, who started their new signing, uh, Edouard Mendy, uh, for the first time on the weekend. Kepa has officially lost his spot as the universal number one for Chelsea. Uh, and a, a very, very relaxed debut for Mendy. Uh, it was a 4-0 win for Chelsea. They really coasted throughout that match never really seemed as though they were going to have an issue in it um but interestingly enough it, it did take them until the second half to get a goal however once the floodgates opened they you know they began to pour out yeah exactly yeah it was a pretty comfortable win um all things considered you're you're absolutely right it was a while it took a while for them to break through but once they did they never looked like being another result there palace had been pretty tight defensively to this point um but again just so much quality in that attacking third from Chelsea that eventually you knew once the first goal came in, it was going to be a matter of time before more came. I thought an interesting talking point here in the game was the fact that we had two penalties. Uh, The first one was taken by Jorginho and the second one was wanted to be taken by him. And then Tammy Abraham picked up the ball as all good strikers should and said, Hey, I want to take this one. I want to get on the score sheet and get a goal in this game. As Piliqueta had to step in and actually resolve the differences between the two players, gave the ball to Jorginho, who's the designated penalty taker at Chelsea, and he duly scored from the spot. What did you make of that whole interaction? It was quite interesting to see play out on the field. It was, especially because at that point, Chelsea was 3-0 up, and the game seemed to be pretty much over. Um, I have to I have to side on the side of Jorginho in this one and I really think it's it's as simple as you know Frank Lampard makes his team sheet and says who will be taking the penalties Jorginho has taken the penalties for Chelsea all of the last season and a half I thought it was a bit bizarre for Abraham to really step in there. It wasn't as if he didn't win that penalty and it wasn't as if he was on a hat trick or anything like that, where that's a situation where you oftentimes see a player step in and say, come on, let let me get that third. Um, So yeah, maybe a bit of a, a, dare I say, childish moment for Tammy Abraham. But I think that Jorginho rightfully took the penalty and I think credit to Azpilicueta stepping in, doing the captain's job and saying, listen, this is not your role on the pitch. Give it to Jorginho. I think part of it for me is the fact that last season he was the man at the start of the season. He was banging in goals for fun. He was leading the line for Chelsea. Now they have Timo Werner in the side, right? He's he's not as hot as he was last season. He ended the season on kind of like a cold streak, if you will compared to the way he started it, certainly. Um, and now he's wanting to get back on the score sheet. And I think there's a little bit of desire on his part to, to score however he can, whether that be mm-hmm. from the penalty spot or otherwise. So I get it. I understand it. That said, 
Timo Werner is not really setting the world on fire himself, um, and he's not grabbing the ball. So I agree with Azpilicueta. There's a designated penalty taker for a reason, and I do think that Jorginho, I mean, he proved it. He scored the goal, right? He scored two, two goals from the spot. Exactly. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that's a really good point, though. I think that there was a bit of a chip on Tammy Abraham's shoulder. Uh, I think it, it played out all right, and you know, you you would you would think that that's not something that's going to tear up the the dressing room. Uh, I want to also give a shout out to Ben Chilwell. He scored on his league debut for Chelsea. He actually got the first in that match of all players, none of their attackers, uh, and then the second goal as well, scored by Kurt Zuma on a towering header. So um, it, it definitely bodes well for Chelsea when they can get two goals, both from defenders, uh, before turning it over to uh, their their spot kick maestro. They're the new Newcastle. All the defenders scoring goals are Zach. Well, one last shout out on the Chelsea side. Kai Havertz is starting to look a little bit more comfortable now. Um, coming into his element, I thought he had a rough start at the beginning of the season, um, but really starting to see the quality shine through for him now. Hopefully, before long, we're going to start seeing Werner banging the goals in for them as well. Yeah, that kind of marauding run by Havertz in the first half before he played it on to Werner. And Werner had a bit of a tame shot on net. Um, definitely showed what Havertz can do. And yeah, you, you got you to gotta wonder what the team sheet's going to look like once Christian Pulisic is back at full health, which is going to be quite soon. He came in as a substitute to get some minutes in that match. And a lot of, a lot of options up top for, for old Frank. So we will see how they do it. Now, Adam, from, from there, I want to move on to a team that did not have a good weekend, and that would be Manchester City. It's been a very, very tough beginning to the season for them, dropping points this weekend against high-flying leads. Um, a lot to take, uh, a lot to talk about from this match, but we'll, we'll start with, with Manchester City. They did go up in the match, which almost makes it even worse for the citizens, um, what I would almost describe as a trademark goal for Raheem Sterling, that in cutting and that the way he is able to dip the shoulder and just hesitate is something that I think he is a top player in the world uh, at, at being able to cut in and, and get a shot on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for, for me right now, I would make the statement that Raheem Sterling is the most important player on that city team, even beyond Kevin De Bruyne and his output and his assists. Raheem Sterling to me is the the player that they need to be building that team around and they continue to build that team around. So great goal from Sterling Um, Leeds got back into it equalized in the 59th minute with a Rodrigo goal, awful mistake from Ederson. We talked about the mistake. Maybe it's a weekend of goalkeeping mistakes, right? Pickford made it. I was going to say there there are a few more to mention. Nick Pope will, will bring up in a moment. Yep. So it's not, not been a great weekend if you're a goalkeeper, but Ederson for me, Super overrated. He's got a pretty good save percentage. I was looking that up and trying to make an argument that he was worse than Kepa, but I don't think I could make that argument <laughs> after doing no, some more research on it. Yeah, that's, but that's I, a I just, I mean, there, there was a while there where we talked about Ederson in the same vein as Allison in terms of caliber of goalkeeper. He's not even close, Zach. He's not even close. No, Allison has a firm grip on the Brazil number one spot, without a doubt. Um, I, I mean, I think that, you know, where, where people really like to credit Ederson is on his distribution. And that's something that Pep has made a very fundamental part of his team is having a keeper that can receive a cross or save a shot and immediately get the counterattack going, using that keeper as part of the counterattack. So on that, I would say that Ederson is one of the top two or three keepers in the world, but you're right, being a keeper fundamentally is about being able to protect your own net and yep. just a poor a poor punch away by Ederson leading to that Rodrigo opener um 
On the other side of the pitch, though, I think that an important thing to mention is there was a clear issue with the lack of natural striker that City had in this match. Raheem Sterling actually being played on the sheet as the number nine, which is a Mm -hmm. position he's almost never played before. So it begs the question, you know, is Manchester City, is their big Achilles heel this year going to be the fact that they don't have a world-class striker? Because Gabriel Jesus coming off an injury, we still haven't seen him do a consistent season in the Premier League. Where do you see the biggest weaknesses for City being? Yeah, I think that's a great point. City are always going to score goals, right? They have Mares, they have De Bruyne, they have Sterling, they have plenty of talent in that team. Jesus is not the answer. You and I have agreed on this before. Um, mm. I don't see an issue in Sterling playing up top. I think Sterling's got got the skills to play up there. He can certainly finish. He's got a lot of good skill to play up there. But I think that might be an area that they might have thought to strengthen before the transfer window closed. I would I would say this. Here, here's Here's my take on Manchester City. The players to me did not look like, in general, maybe Sterling with the exception of Sterling, did not seem to me to have the passion that they once had in, the, in, the, in these first couple of games. They look like, to me, a team that's just coasting. Coasting on reputation, coasting on the successes of the past. I don't see City winning the league this season. And City are the bookies' favorites to win the league this season. But I just don't see it. And Guardiola as well. Like, does he have the appetite after all these years at City to go again in the league? I'm not sure. Um, to me, they're lacking a passion. And it's hard to articulate that in terms of like, you know, in terms of the statistics or anything like that. But looking at them on the pitch, Sterling looks hungry. Ake looks hungry. And that's about it for me. I don't, I don't see it from City this year. It is an interesting point, this kind of, you know, this sense of complacency that does seem to be rising with City. Um, I, I think that the shout on on Sterling and Ake is, is correct. Uh, I think that those are the two players who are really, you know, trying to be first to every ball. It does, you're right though, it does have the feeling of a team that's kind of, you know, clocking in at 9 a.m., doing their job, getting it done. You know, they're, it's not as if they're, falling apart at the seams they're getting the job done but there's nothing more nothing less they clock out at five and, it, and it's over and you wonder if it you know you wonder if they need a full team overhaul is that it do you need to pretty much sell everybody but De Bruyne Sterling um, maybe Bernardo Silva and just completely refresh the team or or it does it come down to Pep Guardiola and that's something that we might not ever know it's maybe something in the back room but it does seem like of all clubs, City is being run as a business rather than a soccer mm-hmm. team. For, for me, it comes from the top down. And this is the longest yeah. that Guardiola has ever been at a club. If he'd won the Champions League, I don't think he'd be here right now. If he'd won the mm. Champions League with City, he's checked all the boxes. There's nothing left to achieve. And I don't see him winning the Champions League this year either, right? So you yeah. look at the other side of the field, you've got a Leeds team that is hungry, that has players that are young, that want to play their hearts out um, for Marcelo Bielsa, that want to score goals, that want to play attractive football. Like, would you be more excited right now to be a Leeds fan or a City fan? <laughs> um. 
maybe in the moment a Leeds fan. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a crazy question to ask, but I, I see where you're coming from there. They are, yeah, they're playing like chickens with their heads cut off. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a team that is trying to punch as high above their weight as they can. And something that I noted in this game that was especially impressive to me is they got this draw against Manchester City without Jack Harrison who Mm -hmm. scored that wonderful goal against Liverpool in the opening match, has played quite well in the three matches, and then had to be sat this match because he's actually on loan from Manchester City, so he was ineligible. And yet they they were still pouring men forward. I was seeing, you know, freeze frames of six players in the box for Leeds, even when they were – Drew, even after they had drew 1-1. You know, most clubs, not even newly promoted clubs, but most clubs in the Premier League would sit back once they – you know, get, get a get a goal back against Manchester City, and it's it's all or nothing for Leeds. And you'd you'd have to say, as a neutral fan, they must be the most exciting team in the Premier League right now to watch. Oh yeah, I'm excited to watch Leeds every game at the moment. It's Bielsa ball, right? We talked about it last time on the pod. Yep. It's it's great to watch. And what really impressed me is they shipped three goals, or four goals, I should say, at Anfield. And they tightened it up against the best offense in the league. Over 100 goals last season for City. Only team to do that. And they tightened it up and they conceded one. And they just, they're just they making investments in the defense. They're starting to gel a little bit more. Lots of incoming players. Le- leads for me are a top 10 team this season. That would be phenomenal. Yeah, if they... If they- kind of pulled a Sheffield United, but with a style of play that is the polar opposite of Sheffield United. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, I mean, Sheffield United probably wishes that they were Leeds right now, considering, you know, their their tough start to the season. Um, Yeah, I I think – Top ten is a great shout, and that would be a fantastic season. They, you know, as you said, it's it's Bielsa ball. It's eight, it's nine goals scored, but eight goals allowed. So it's not as if they're you know horribly strong at the back mm-hmm. at the moment. But you know, if you score more than the opponent, it doesn't really matter. Keegan esque, Keegan esque, Keegan esque indeed. So perfect uh, tie-in to uh, Kevin Keegan's uh, married club. It's Newcastle United getting a much-needed victory after that horror show uh, against Brighton. Although, you know, what do you expect when you play Brighton and your Newcastle United? Um, but big 3-1 victory for Newcastle on the weekend against Burnley. Did not know this statistic. It, it's now nine matches unbeaten uh, for Newcastle against Burnley. So we, it seems like we might be their boogeyman in the same way that Brighton is possibly our boogeyman, but a really just a really great game for Newcastle and one of the more, I would argue, one of the more confident victories I've seen the club have in in a long while. Random statistic that you don't care about. Um, the last time Newcastle lost to Burnley, I was in Tuscany watching the game uh, on TV with my fact. family. <laughs> so I was in Italy last time they lost back in 2017. So yeah, 3-1 three, three, win. Can't complain about that. I thought we looked a lot better. I can't tell if it was the fact that we looked better or Burnley were just that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but Burnley do this every season. They lull us into this false sense of security that they're going to get relegated. And then all of a sudden, Sean Dyche figures out a way to survive. And then Ashley Barnes and Chris Wood start banging in the goals, <laughs> rinse and repeat season after season, right? So yeah, good that, good that we played them now. Right time to play them. Nice 3-1 victory. I think, I think the thing here for us to talk about is um, Alan St. Maximin, right? Yeah. Just there, an there's incredible only, performance. Only Yeah, there was only one man to put as the, the man in the match there. Um, 
ASM's scoring the opening goal. Uh, I, I would like to give credit to Callum Wilson, who had the assist on that goal, showing his strength and, and chesting the ball down. But St. Maximin just is brilliant solo effort, you know, dribbling to the right, cutting back to the left, cutting back to the right, putting it past Nick Pope. And what really was stuck out to me is you could see the defender, how afraid of him the defenders were on that. Absolutely. You know, the, I, I like St. Maximin has established himself as one of the premier dribblers in the Premier League. And when he gets that ball with space, with momentum, it's a pretty terrifying prospect for a defending team. I mean, given Burnley is not you know, the, the most impressive defensive team, you could probably see defenders who, who would maybe step into a challenge there. But yeah, what, what an opening goal for St. Maximin. Incredible goal. Yeah. And you can almost hear the pre-match kind of team talk from, uh, <laughs> from Sean Dyche, just basically saying, bring him down, foul him every chance you get. Cause that's exactly what happened on the field. Don't let, don't let Alan St. Maximin take a shot on goal. No, don't was, ever, was, don't ever do a Sean Dyche impression again. <laughs> that was a direct quote. I just drew that audio from an interview of Sean Dyche. No, but, yeah, but you're you, right. It's, it, was, it was a great performance from St. Maximin. Um, just really bossed the game, was the difference maker for us. Uh, scored one, set up another. Um, and, you know, you made a good point also about Callum Wilson. I think that Callum Wilson, four goals in four games, first Newcastle striker to do that since Les Ferdinand in the 90s. Crazy statistic. I hadn't heard that, hadn't heard that before this weekend. Shout out to Dave for that statistic. It's a really good one. Um, and then the other thing I'd mention is, we're starting to see an uptick in form from Joe Linton. Listen, that guy's never going to score you 10 to 15 goals a season, but he's starting to look more comfortable, better con- contributions to the game. And I would say the reason is he's got the weight of the world off his shoulders because we finally have a goal scorer and it's not him that's expected to do it. I could not agree more. And I was hoping that you would bring that up because I was particularly of, of all the players who did not score or assist a goal in that match. I would say that Joe Linton was the best outfield player. Um, I, I think that playing him on the left was something that we've pretty much never seen from Steve Bruce playing this kind of modified version of a four, two, three, one. And it seemed as though actually, when we were in possession, it was a 4-2-3-1. When we were defending, it was more of that 4-4-2 with Joe Linton going up next to Callum Wilson. And yeah, I I thought he played really well. It was one of those matches where all of his contributions were kind of on interplay in that midfield. Um, And I, I do think that he is getting a bit more confidence, which is good to see. I think he absolutely still has a place in this team because I think he is a talented footballer. Um, but yeah, it's going to be interesting once, you know, once Ryan Frazier gets back to full health. Seemingly, though, Miggy Almiron's being pushed out of the team, which is kind of bizarre to me. Um, and, you know, you, you wouldn't normally say this with Newcastle, but it seems like there are a lot of attacking options for, for Steve Bruce to choose from. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The Almiron point was something that I wanted to talk about, too. The fact that he's not starting in this lineup is very telling to me. Um, you, he, for me, he'd be one of the first names on the team sheet. Almiron and St. Maximin, for me, start every game. I would be making making room in the team to bring him on. So that's been an interesting development, I think. I wonder what's behind that. Is it that he's out of favor? Is it that he just isn't seen to be contributing as much as other players in the team? He's very streaky, very patchy, but he scored plenty of goals last season, more, more so than Joe Linton did. I'm I'm curious to see how that pans out over the next few weeks. It's been an interesting development this year. 
Yeah, there's not really a ton of rhyme or reason to it. I mean, I personally think that undoubtedly he should be in the team sheet um, over Jeff Hendrick. I think I think that Jeff Hendrick, you know, had that great first match against West Ham and has kind of fizzled a bit. I think he was maybe the one player who didn't really contribute too much in my mind in this match on the weekend. I mean, I think the Miggy and Miggy and Sam Maximin next to each other offer so much pace, so much creativity. Um, it'll, you know, we're, we, we won the match, so you're, I'm not going to criticize too heavily, but it will begin to frustrate me more and more if we continue seeing Hendrick get put in this lineup, Miggy being put on the bench, and this kind of stifling of creativity and attacking prowess that, you know, the Paraguayan has established that he, he can provide. Yep, it'll be an interesting development over the next few weeks. To, to kind of really summarize, it's not the prettiest of football from Steve Bruce, but in the space of a week, he took four points from six, he got a point at Spurs, and he took three points at home to Burnley, and he got us to another cup quarterfinal. We have Brentford up next, which is a winnable game. We could potentially be in a cup semifinal. It's not pretty, but somehow it's effective. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's not, a, not a really rational way of explaining it. it Maybe it just comes down to the individual talent on the pitch. I mean, you, you do see that the, most of those players do really enjoy playing for Steve Bruce. St. Maximin, after scoring his goal, running immediately over to the manager and, and embracing him there. Uh, so it, it is a puzzling, puzzling case of, of what Steve Bruce is able to contribute to this club, what he holds the team back from doing. But, I mean, Newcastle – currently uh, ninth place in the table, not going to complain too much. I think we, we would be um, remiss not to mention the other two goals that were scored. Uh, it was Callum Wilson getting both of those. And in fact, Alan St. Maximum being the architect of that first Callum Wilson goal as well, um, mm-hmm. a brilliant piece of dribbling and that acceleration on the right wing to just absolutely put Charlie Taylor in the dirt before rolling in a perfect cross for Wilson tapping. It was the same maximum show, but Cal Wilson getting that goal, getting a, a second goal from the penalty spot after a terrible, terrible piece of play by Nick Pope and a foul on Ryan Frazier. So do want to give the shout out to the striker who, as you said, has four goals in four matches. The one last thing I'll say on Callum Wilson, amazing scoring the goals, two of them penalties, put them both away. He needs to work on his finishing in the air. His headers this season have been nothing short of diabolical. Get it on target, my friend. Get it on target. You could have had six or seven. Yeah, his his aerial threat is a lack thereof type situation at the moment. Um, and, you know, may, maybe there is some way to design these kind of attacks that allows – Joe Linton to, to be the one who's getting in the box, or maybe Joe Linton just needs to get in the box. We saw that issue all of last year. So many good balls being put in there and Joe Linton not really being in the danger zone, but he's a player that I'd be much more comfortable going up for a header than, than Callum Wilson at the moment. Agree. One last final thought on Newcastle form of Carl Darlow. There were rumors yep. maybe a week or two ago about him potentially getting a Wales call up. He has a grandparents that, that's Welsh. He's rejected Wales in the past um, but with everything happening now, with poor form from Pope in this game, with Pickford shocking as always, there's rumors that Darlow might be in line for a call up to the England squad. God, I hope not. That that guy is as bad in the air as Callum Wilson is on the opposite end. Mm-hmm. He has put in a handful of very impressive performances. I mean, albeit I believe three of them were in the cup. So take a, take that with a grain of salt. He was great against Spurs. He was great again against Burnley. Um, 
it certainly was not uh, liable for the Ashley Westwood goal for Burnley, which was just a brilliant volley uh, by the winger. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's a, it's a nice luxury that seemingly we've never had before to have a backup keeper who can fill in and seemingly do, you know, do the job. For me, he's a shot stopper. He's like Tim Krul. He's very competent, good shot stopper. But when you hang a ball into the box, he's unconvincing, lacks the quality to be able to get a good solid punch away. Pavel Cernicek back in the day was exactly the same sort of keeper. Um, and I, I just don't have a lot of confidence in him. Like, I don't yeah. see him ousting anybody from the England lineup. Oh, no. I mean, absolutely not. And I don't, also don't see him as a long-term fix for Newcastle. I don't see him really hopefully not char- challenging Dubravka. But no, I think that's a perfect way of summing it up. Uh, Tim Krul, as you said, was the exact same way. Not a good distributor of the ball, and Carl Darlow is the same way, albeit he had that kind of hockey assist uh, this weekend for the St. Maximum goal. But um, yeah, I, I think he does what we need him to do. Um, and I think that's really all he can ask of a backup when he comes in for a short period of time. Yep, I agree. All right, Newcastle, though, doing well. Seven doing points well. from 12. Can't complain. You got it. You got to love it. Yeah. Um, So we will take a quick commercial break and then we will come back to go over the Sunday fixtures, uh, two of which I think we'll, we'll spend a decent amount of time talking about. I think we absolutely will. Some shocks on the Sunday, Zach. We'll get right back to it. All right. Be back in a minute. All right. And we are back from that commercial break. So, as we, as we talked about at the beginning of the pod, uh, the match that really, really turned heads this weekend, shocker at Villa Park. Villa going up against Liverpool. You see that 7-2 scoreline, and you're like, wow, Liverpool pumped them. I assume that Salah got a hat trick. Maybe Mane got a hat trick as well. And then you look a little bit closer and see that the home side, Aston Villa, beating Reigning champions Liverpool by a five-goal margin. So much to talk about here, Adam. Uh, just what a day. What a day uh, for the villains. Yeah, I mean, it, it took like two-thirds of the season to get Liverpool's first loss last year. And here we have it, game number four for them. They get absolutely destroyed by an Aston Villa side that's boasting Ollie Watkins with a hat trick. Now, Now, I will say one thing. They did have some good fortune go their way, some deflections that went their way, but I feel like they were really good value for the victory. They probably could have scored more than seven. That's crazy to say. Liverpool just weren't at the races, to be honest, Zach. And I don't know if it was because Mane was out. He had contracted COVID, so he was out. And Jota came in, did very little in his place. But it was just, it was not the Liverpool of last year. Um, And Villa looked hungry. They looked like they wanted to win that game. Plenty of goals in them. They struggled with that last year. Samata, who they bought in the January transfer window, he's out on loan now going out from Villa. And they've brought in Ollie Watkins. And this guy looks like he's the real deal. Dream debut hat trick. I think you said it yourself for Ollie Watkins. Great, great performance from Villa. Not just a dream debut hat trick for Ollie Watkins, the young Englishman in his Premier League debut, but a perfect hat trick as well. A perfect hat trick for those who don't know means a goal with your left boot, a goal with your right boot, and a goal with your head. And that's exactly what transpired for Watkins. His first goal coming on a poor pass from Adrian, the backup keeper, as uh, Allison was out injured, intercepted by Grealish, passed back to Ollie Watkins, who put it away. And then his second goal just a few minutes later, 
a lot nicer than the first. Watkins just taking on Trent Alexander-Arnold, beating him to the inside and roofing a ball into the top of the net. Um, a remarkable first half. There were five goals scored in that first half alone. Um, uh, Ollie Watkins got his third. It was all three of his goals were before halftime. Uh, that one, a glanced header from a low cross. Um, but yeah, I mean, what is the blame for this awful day for Liverpool? Is it Mane or I, I thought that Van Dyke had a horrible match. Uh, he's looked completely out of sorts to begin the season. Do you think Liverpool is suffering a, a similar thing to, to Manchester City? Just a lack of motivation or, or what is it there? I think it could be a second season hangover. I think you're right. You mentioned Van Dyke. I thought Alexander Arnold looked like garbage. This is supposedly the best right back in the world. He's constantly getting beaten on the right-hand side. Just doesn't, to me, look like he's he's in the same form as he was in last season. I, I would like to think Klopp has always been very protective of his teams. I would like to think he gave him a right rollicking in the dressing room after this game. This was unacceptable like how, how concerned are you by this start to the season do you think that like do you think that Liverpool at this point are going to be able to compete at the level they did last year and potentially win the league again or do you think that you've seen enough to to be concerned that they're out of the title picture no I mean, that, that would be a, a pretty a pretty knee-jerk assessment. There's still just one loss from four matches, three wins in the other matches, and they are three points back of Everton. Uh, I mean, I, I think that... I don't know. I was going to say Salah in the first game rescued them against Leeds. They could have easily lost that game at home at Anfield against Leeds. Mo Salah is world-class, and he's in good form, and he might be the only player right now on the Liverpool team that's actually in decent form. Mm-hmm. Um, I just... I'm nervous, Zach. Sorry to interrupt you there, but I'm really nervous for this Liverpool team. It's such a weird... Villa and Everton are the last two undefeated teams in the league. What odds would you have got on Villa and Everton to be the last two undefeated teams in the league this season? It it is shocking, and I I think the shout-out for Mohamed Salah is is rightful. I mean, he had the two Liverpool goals in this match, both of which were were quite nice finishes by him. He's back to that form from a couple years ago, although you could probably argue that he never really fell off that form. Um, And, I mean, as you mentioned, it's it's one of those things where you wonder if Klopp, in his kind of post-game chat with his club, was saying, you know, they they got lucky, there were – I would say John McGinn, John McGinn's goal, uh, Jack Grealish's first goal, and then Ross Barkley's goal all were were products of massive deflections uh, by the Liverpool defense. Mm-hmm. But then you have to you have to also on the other side say you know you need to be in the box and you need to be taking shots to get those deflections. So um, I think all the credit needs to be given to to Villa. I don't think it's time to ring the alarm on Merseyside for for Liverpool, but. They need to be voting in well, well better performances than this because it was a it was an embarrassing day for them. Yeah, I agree. On the flip side of that, Villa, I'll ask you in a second what's the ceiling for Villa, but I want to call one thing out first. Ross Barkley, what a signing. I've always rated Barkley. I've always thought he's a top player. He's never really gotten a run at Chelsea because there's so much quality around him. He's been in and out of the side. But when he's played, he's looked really, really good. I think it's a mistake to let him out of that team and I think he's going to show it he's going to start every week at Villa and he's going to have a really really successful season in my eyes mm-hmm. yeah I think that's a fantastic fantastic loan signing for Aston Villa um was it a loan or was it a permanent deal 
It's a love. Yeah, season-long yeah. okay. love. Yep, they let Ro- Loftus-Cheek go as well. We'll talk about that in a bit. But um, yeah. yeah, so Loftus-Cheek and Barkley on the way out. So, All right, yeah. Well, a, a crazy day uh, in Birmingham. So uh, something that no one would have expected to see. I wonder what the odds on. A tenor on a 7-2 Villa win would have, would have netted <laughs> you, probably. Pr- pretty pro- crazy. Probably probably would have retired today. Um, before, so, before, what, before we move on, I just want to ask you, what is the sure. ceiling for Villa? Oh, okay. Um, where, do you, where do you think like, they can realistically aim for this season? Mid-table. Uh, I'd say mid-table. I don't think they're going to crack the top six by any means. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, not a ton of depth in that team. So once the, once the fixture list gets a bit more congested, I think they'll, they'll start to lose some matches. Uh, I mean, I, I think if they – they finish between, I don't know, above 12th. I think that's a successful season for them. Yep. I think that's a good shout. I think, you know, they're finally healthy as well. They had injury issues last season with McGinn. They had Grealish out of the team for, for quite some time, but you know, they've, they've made some really astute signings. And, um, you know, I think one of the ones that maybe um, that flew under the, the radar was they were having problems at goalkeeper last season. And then this season they've brought in basically the best shot stopper in the Premier League, the best save percentage, I should say, in Emiliano Martinez. That was a really great signing for them. When Leno went out, Martinez came in. Martinez had the best save percentage in the Premier League and they've signed that player. And I think that that's going to really, really help them defensively this year. They're going to be tighter at the back and they've obviously got plenty of goals in them now. We've seen that against Liverpool. Yeah, some canny signings during the summer for Aston Villa, really beefing up uh, the issues that they had last year where they leaked in goals left and right. Um, so from from one blowout victory to another, Adam, uh, let's go over to Old Trafford. The Theater of Dreams was home to an absolute riot that was run by Tottenham Hotspur, a 6-1 victory away at Manchester United, um, a game that was full of a lot of incidents, a lot of talking points, um, and it really started with, in fact, Manchester United going up after just 30 seconds, a penalty in the box. Bruno Fernandes, as he does, stepped up, put it away, and you thought, okay, there's going to be you know, a, a pretty big uphill climb for Tottenham Hotspur, but from that moment on, the game completely was turned on its head. Yeah, absolutely. Theater of Dreams turned into the theater of nightmares for Manchester United in this game. Started well, as you said, got the penalty, scored it. I love the little little hop step that uh, Fernandez does before he yep. takes his penalty. It's him, and, him and Jorginho both have that. That's right. Waits, sees the keeper commit and then puts it in the opposite corner. It's beautiful. It's a so stupid i don't know why nobody else does it right it's like it just seems it seems like it's very logical that you would if you have the skill take that extra split second and then put it the opposite way that you see the goalkeeper committing to so I, I think the big talking point in this game for me though that really turned the game was the martial red card um That's yep the for me it was an awful awful mistake on his part i don't know if you saw the replay but lamella kind of threw a wayward elbow almost, trying to jockey for position. There was nothing in it. And then Martial kind of puts a hand out and slaps him in the face gently. But it was so obviously done as retaliation to the elbow. He gets a straight red card. You can see he's like, really? For such a tame kind of slap in the face? But you can't raise your hands to people. There's jockeying for position, and there's blatant retaliation. This was blatant retaliation. And I hope he learns from it because it cost his side. They, they might have still lost the game, 
but you know, this, this was definitely not helpful. 11 on 10 definitely was a telling uh, numerical advantage that really paid its way in terms of the scoreline at the end, right? Yeah, I mean, it was frustrating to watch from a, a neutral point of view because like, ultimately he didn't do – Anthony Martial didn't do anything to put Eric Lamella in harm. I, I'm kind of split on this because, like, yes, the letter of the law says you can't touch another player's face, but, like, we, we, saw, we saw the letter of the law be, you know, uprooted last week when every time the ball touched anybody's hand in the box it was called a penalty, and then, you know, the, the referees were then told, okay, stop calling every single – handball in the box penalty. And I think it's it's somewhere close to that for me where Martial should not be kicked off the field for that. It Like he, he touches Lamella's face, but he doesn't do anything wrong. Like he didn't, Lamella made a huge deal of it, rolled on the ground for a bit. And yes, like that is a red card, but it just, it's frustrating when the game is completely tipped on its head on something that like didn't put the player in danger, didn't, you know, was not malicious by any means. And I don't know. I, you know, I, it was an entertaining game to watch. You you saw Spurs again. They had four goals in the first half. After that, they had um, you know Son had a hat trick, and it was an exciting game to watch. But it's just, I'm it, it's it's very difficult for me to say that I thought that Anthony Martial should be sent off for what he did. I completely disagree. I think that Martial absolutely deserved to be sent off. You, you mentioned the the issues last week they were talking about with the handball. You throw your hands up and like you're they're supposed to be in an unnatural position. That's just a reaction, right? Martial made a conscious decision to raise his hands and hit Lamella in the face. Whether you, you he did not, you whether cannot he did, say hit. hit, hit. There's no way that he slapped. hit Lamella. He, no, no, slapped is even even farther from the truth. He touched his face. He like if you if you can watch that video and tell me that he forcefully did anything to Eric Lamella's face, I would doesn't be matter. Shocked. Doesn't matter. There's intent. There's intent there. It's a retaliation to what he felt was a flagrant elbow from Lamella. And he made a decision to basically respond to that and put his hand in his face. That is a decision that Martial made. He made that decision himself. It's not like an arm going up. That's just a natural reaction. Whether you say that's an unnatural or natural position to be in. Martial made a mistake. It was soft. It was absolutely a soft red card. And I'm not excusing the way Lamella reacted to that either. It looked like he'd been shot by a sniper. Not great. But still, he could have completely avoided this. This is all on Martial for me. I suppose it is apples and oranges. Uh, between the handball rule that was slightly modified and, and this. It just, I don't know, it it made me a little angry to see the game completely changed by something that was, was I, I think Lamella's reaction was what really bothered me. Like, it, yeah, if, Lamella, I see that. if Lamella stood there and just looked at the ref and then the ref came over and gave a red card, that's one thing. But Eric Lamella, talk about petulant. That, that man has made a career out of being a petulant player and it was on display there, so... There was a little bit of me that was pretty fed up with that as it happened. But, I mean, you, you do have to give credit to Spurs, though, from, from there on. Because you, you've seen plenty of times a team goes up 1-0 and still can't really figure out a way. And, and Spurs were operating at such a high octane. And Dombele getting, getting the first goal, Son getting the second, Kane getting the third right after the red card, and, and then Son getting his second with a really nice goal. Uh, before Aria and, and Kane scored in the second half uh, to, to close that out. So actually, I, I misspoke before. It was two goals by Son, two goals by Kane. Um, 
and then Aria and 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 Dombele getting mm-hmm. those goals themselves. So, yeah, a lot, a lot to talk about there. Again, a lot, a lot to talk about. What one other stat I thought that was telling: in three years at Old Trafford as manager, Mourinho did not score six goals in a game. He went back with Spurs and did it at Old Trafford. Uh, just incredible, right? He's not he's not really renowned for scoring six goals as Jose Mourinho. Keep it tight. Three to four, kind of max, is kind of Mourinho's thing. Um, one other thing I thought that was telling in this game was, did you notice there was a cheeky kind of substitution cameo for Delhi Alley in this game? No, was that was that a last minute, like 30 second walk on? 20 to 25 minutes, end of the game. Game was in the bag, red card. There are several goals up. He brought on Delhi Alley. You, you got to wonder, you got to wonder, will he play a part? I mean, he's not going to go anywhere at this point. No, he's, I mean, he's, he's there at least till January, to your point, but... Yeah, interesting. Uh, Spurs top four this season, Zach, maybe? Spurs could definitely be top four. They are looking fantastic. Uh, I mean, Hugo Lloris is back to his old form. The the attack is um, looking phenomenal. Uh, it, it begs the question, who has the most dangerous front three in the Premier League right now? Because I was looking at various team sheets, and in years past, you'd say Liverpool by a mile, right? But you know, mm-hmm. Spurs are up there with Kane, Son, Mora, soon to be Bale. They have a number of other options. Chelsea with Werner, Havertz, uh, Christian Pulisic, Mason Mount even coming in there. Um, I, I'd say even West Ham, who we'll talk about in a second, have a pretty potent top three. So I think that's a cool thing is the emergence of, of four three three formations this season. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would have gone into the season saying that Manchester United probably had the most potent front three in their Premier League. Not feeling that right now. We'll get to we'll get to them obviously here here soon too. But I mean, not not great for Manchester United. Um, looking at looking at their team in general, uh, what, is this on the manager? Is this like it, this is the same team in essence that we had at the tail end of last season that was banging them in for fun and couldn't stop scoring? Rashford on the score sheet every game, Martial on the score sheet every game, um, Greenwood on the score sheet every game. They're looking terrible right now. They look like they're still on holiday. Yeah, I, I think it has to be at least at least a, a good good percentage on the manager if you're not able to create that sort of structure to maximize the efficiency and the uh the skill level of all your players i mean you know no one's going to doubt that man united has quality but if you're not putting together a team that can work together and win that's that's on the manager i i don't know man i i think that ole it's about it's about time for ole to be out i i think that there's really there's, he has hit his ceiling. There, there's nothing more he's going to do for that club than get them to the Champions League. And I think you're seeing it here. I mean, the, the man doesn't have – it seemingly doesn't have a lot of ideas and no sort of plan B. I don't know. I, I just think Manchester United need a real manager. And I, 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 that's a harsh thing to say, but Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is not a world-class manager. There's no way you can make that, that – um, I don't know, that, uh, that opinion valid to me. And on that point, we will leave it, and I will agree with you 100%. I think Ollie's time has come. He won't last a season for me. No.
I, I don't think so either. I think Maurizio Pochettino will probably be at Manchester United before the end of the year. That is my prediction for you. Graham Potter, Zach. Graham Potter at the Theatre of Dreams. <laughs> yeah, Brighton off to a flying start this season. One win in four matches. Brighton have had a lot of tough fixtures and they've come close. They shouldn't have, lost, shouldn't have lost the menu. Hit the bar five times. Come on, give them some credit. I know, I'm just giving you shit. Um, so uh, a good rebound victory, though, for West Ham. It's actually two in two for West Ham after starting that season off slowly. They're just behind Newcastle in the table um, and a surprise domination of Leicester City. Leicester is a completely inconsistent team to begin the year. They put five past City and then they can't even get a shot on target against West Ham. Uh, Yeah, a a weird, another one of those weird score lines you didn't expect to see this weekend. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I was, I was quite surprised to see this result, especially after Leicester really turn over Manchester City the week before, right? But that's Leicester for you. They have that performance in them to win games and score five goals against, against teams that are up and around there. Actually, that, I take that back. That was one of the weaknesses they had last season was teams around them they, they struggled against. So maybe you thought they turned the corner. And then, of course, they play West Ham at home and lose 3-0. So uh, David Moyes, not there on the sideline at home. I uh, didn't hear if he had COVID or if he was like worried that he had it and he was quarantining, but either way, he wasn't there. Uh, mm-hmm. and he had it was Stuart COVID related. It, COVID no, related. it was Alan Irvine. Alan Irvine was the man up there for West Ham. Yep. And Stuart Pierce was on the sidelines as well too. I That's that true. Was, yeah. Yep. You had the, old, the old band was getting back together again. It's so good. Ex Newcastle, Stuart Pierce. I love Stuart Pierce. Psycho as they called him back in the day. He's a fantastic player. So um seeing him on the sideline and then you know just great performance. That front three, you mentioned it a few minutes ago. Uh Mikel Antonio scored another goal. Um I want to pause on him for a second. I saw a stat on match of the day this weekend that no striker in the Premier League has scored more goals than Mikel Antonio's 10 goals since Project Restart. He's 30 years old. He's gotten call-ups to the England squad before, but he's never played, never started, or come off the bench for them. Will Mikel Antonio get his first England start this season? (laughs) No. Uh, Mikel Antonio (laughs) maybe will get, like, put on at the 85th minute, but will he start a game? Probably not. Um, but yeah, but that's, I, a I was ca- actually- that's a cap, right? That's a cap. That's what he wants. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. A cap is different than a start. But yes, I, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Yep, um, I, I'm glad you pointed out that stat um, as I was going to do the same thing. Um, yeah, I was shocked when I saw that he was tied for, for 10 goals. And then I remembered the four that he put past. Was it? it might have actually been Villa uh, that he put it past at the end of last season. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, West Ham seemingly is, is really starting to coalesce. I thought that for now that first touch that for now's had on his goal was filthy un- unbelievable like i watched that time and time again the ball was probably about 60 feet in the air and he, at a full sprint he watched it go over to his shoulder and just took the the perfect setup touch for uh his goal um yeah stat line wise that was a crazy game west ham wins wins three nil they only had 30 percent possession and they had 14 shots so just playing to their strengths, counterattacking, playing with pace. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was a shocking one and, and also a damning defeat for Leicester. I think it's important to touch on that as well. Yep. I think a, a, a hurt, a hurtful defeat for Leicester. They scored a goal at the end and it got disallowed for offsite. It was such a beautiful goal. Did you see that Harvey Barnes mm-hmm. goal at the end of the game? Really, really yeah. nice, nice team goal in, in, in there. 
but Leicester will be fine. I'm not. I'm not overly worried here. But they they have that result in them. They're they're a potentially kind of patchy and streaky team, um, and I I can see this happening more than one occasion this season. I think that the one thing that I noticed that maybe they were kind of experimenting with this and and to their own demise. Leicester was playing an extremely high line in that game defensively and. All three of the West Ham goals came from a breach of that high line. Uh, players being kept on side, um, players, you know, Mikel Antonio making a run down the right and having about 25 yards of space because nobody was tracking back. So I think that was one thing to notice. I thought that uh, uh, Soyuncu had a pretty poor match in the mm-hmm. center of defense for, uh, for Leicester. But um, yeah, may- maybe it's a matter of, of Brendan Rodgers trying to tweak a few things. And, and this was something that he now knows won't work but I agree with you ultimately Leicester will be uh, at, at worst the top 10 side and um, but at the same time they, they have that ability to regress to the, the level of the team that they are playing yeah I think that they will have a tough season this year because they're playing in the Europa League I think they'll get a decent way through the Europa League but I think that'll affect their league form I see them struggling to finish top 10 this year interesting hmm. I like that okay yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see. We we know we know you know from countless clubs that the Europa League can throw a big wrench into domestic matters. Um, mm-hmm. But okay, so uh, three more matches took place Sunday. I think we can kind of skim through these three, Adam. Uh, you yep. know, not as eventful as the the first three we just talked about. Um, first, Wolves uh, getting an important win. They beat. Fulham 1-0. Fulham still staying bottom of the table. Wolves definitely needing a victory there. They seemed kind of a little bit out of sorts in weeks past, especially since losing Diego Jota. But um, an important win for for Wolves on the weekend. Yep, they got the three points. That's pretty much all you can say about this game. You know, we'd expect them to beat Fulham at home, um, given the caliber of the two clubs right now. Um, Fulham, for me, I've said I said this about 60 minutes into their opening game of the season. For me, they're down already. I thought they were a little bit more impressive from a defensive standpoint in this game. Alfonso Ariola played, played this game and looked very good in goal, made a couple of really important saves. There was a big miss from camera towards the end of the game. Mitrovic was dominating and kind of getting himself on the ball with his big physical frame as well. But not a lot to say about this. 1-0 win, pretty much expected, I would say. Yeah, uh, so Wolves getting that 1-0 win. Southampton, the other team that got what you'd probably described as a, a fairly expected victory. It was 2-0 over West Brom, another, you know, the other newly promoted side that's looking pretty dire already uh, despite their their result against Chelsea the weekend before. Um, but Southampton getting a 2-0 win, second on the bounce, and getting that victory without Danny Ings scoring, which is important for them to be able to diversify that attacking contribution across the lineup. Yep, I thought that was an interesting point. Uh, we've said this before. Southampton are a streaky team. They can go on runs of victories and they can go on runs of losses, but in general, they'll be fine. I thought West Brom, I'm trying to kind of figure out what sort of team they are. They look like they've got plenty of goals in them, but they're also conceding goals for fun as well. So it's like they're not quite the Leeds-esque team that plays the attractive football, but they look like they have the capacity to score goals they'll be on the verge of relegation if they don't get relegated, I think, this season. 13 goals conceded in four matches for West Brom. That's the most in the league. So obviously, you know, if you're playing survival football, the, the most important thing is, is to firm up the defense in, in some sort of way. Um, 
Talk about a team that finally got a goal, Sheffield United finally getting off the mark, their fourth match of the season, getting their first goal. Unfortunately, it was all for naught. They fell 2-1 to Arsenal. Arsenal was already up 2-0 at the point uh, that uh, McGoldrick got that goal for Sheffield United. So the horror show uh, this season continuing uh, for that sophomore team. Maybe it's a sophomore slump or maybe they just, you know, shot well, well above their weight last season. It's been pretty interesting to see the fall and the demise of Sheffield United this season. Um, One goal now in four games. They finally got off the mark, as you said, um, getting that goal. Arsenal weren't at the races and they still ground out a result. So I would just say impressive from Arsenal. Pretty dire game in general. Not a lot of chances. But once Saka scored the goal, didn't look like the game and the result was in doubt at any point. So nervous about Sheffield United, continuing to feel good and positive about Arsenal is my summary here. Yeah, I I think that's a a good way of putting it. Arsenal staying up there now in fourth in the table and the Mikel Arteta project is starting to come to fruition. So mm-hmm. um, a good a good recap of the weekend fixtures. We're going into an international break, so um, a, a, a little bit of time to wait until the next round of fixtures. However, something that has taken place in the last couple of days is the closing of the uh, the international transfer window, the latest transfer. A window that's ever taken place. A lot of teams being able to make some panic buys, we'll say, as they saw their beginning of their season maybe go in a different direction than they had hoped. Uh, but Adam, why don't you run us through, uh, in the last few days of the window, there, there were a lot of moves that took place, many of which loans and, and some larger purchases. Um, what are some that stuck out to you? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll kind of go through the ones here and stop me on any of the ones that you want to kind of dive in on a little bit more and I'll add some more context if I think it's worth talking about. Uh, first off, Chelsea, Edward Mendy came in as a goalkeeper from Rennes for $22 million. Obviously there, that's the long-term replacement for Kepa. Didn't see Kepa leave the club, so it should be interesting to see what happens with him. He's going to be sitting on the bench at least for this first half of the season before the transfer window opens again. Leeds brought in Diego Llorente from Real Sociedad for $18 million. Center back, conceded the four goals in the first game looked a bit more solid defensively I think that's a great signing for them and then Bielsa was very vocal about wanting another winger got in Rafinha from Rennes for 17 million he's a right winger thought that was a nice bit of business from them they've had a pretty solid transfer window leads wouldn't you say Mm-hmm. Definitely. I feel bad for, for Ren. They're losing, losing all their top players already this season, but um, yeah, very, very good. Bielsa knows what type of football he wants to play and he's getting the play- pieces that allows him to play it. Yep, absolutely. So at Manchester City um, and in and out from kind of trade between Benfica and Manchester City, Ruben Diaz came in from Benfica for 65 million. They obviously are trying to shore up the defense. Ake, they need someone to play alongside him. They need to make sure Laporte has some backup as well because he has a little bit of an injury-prone streak to him. And then Nicolas Otamendi the other way for to Benfica for $13.6 million. Otamendi, I think, has been a great servant to City. Um, so nice that, nice that obviously, he was able to go and kind of get another chapter in his career. But I think, you know, they'll, they'll miss his presence in the changing room. 
Yeah, I think a bit of a win-win in that situation for both Benfica and Manchester City. I think Benfica getting quite a bit of money for the young center back um, and then also getting a center back, getting a surefire replacement. Obviously, uh, you know, the the Portuguese league, not the level of competition that the Premier League is. And I think that uh, Nicolas Edamendi is not in any way done with his career. I think he'll be able to start pretty much week in and week out if he's healthy. So I think that's win on both sides, but Manchester City doing what they need to do to shore up that defense. Uh, I think it's now over, I think it's officially now over half a billion dollars that Pep Guardiola has spent on a Manchester City <laughs> defense that still has not figured it out. So an interesting slot bot to follow. Definitely not his strength, as we've mentioned previously. Okay, Fulham, Adam Ola Luckman, right winger in from Red Bull Leipzig on loan. Nice signing for them. We talked already about Villa bringing in Ross Barkley from Chelsea on loan. Love, love, love that loan. Um, this one's an interesting one we should probably talk about a little bit more. Sheffield United, Rian Brewster from Liverpool as a center forward for $23.5 million. This screams knee-jerk reaction to me. And I like what Liverpool did here. They put a buyback clause within the first three years. They can actually buy back Rian Brewster. And there's also, also a sell-on clause in here. So some smart business, I think, from Liverpool here. Oh yeah, predatory business verging on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not not a lot to say there. It's a, it's a classic, classic pa- panic buy. It's a classic overpaying for a young English striker who's proved nothing in his career so far. Um, yeah, I, I think that Sheffield United is is really throwing darts at the dartboard and hoping one hits. Yep, they've never really solved that center forward problem for me. We'll we'll see if this is the answer. Leicester, Wesley Fofana, center back from Saint-Étienne, obviously wanting to shore up the defense there. This guy's 30 million pound signing, only 19 years old. Don't know a lot about him. I think will remains to be seen if he'll be successful there. West Ham brought in a new right back, Vladimir Kufal from Slavia Prague for 5 million. Southampton, Ibrahima Diallo, a center, central midfielder from Brest for 12 million. French under 21 internationals, so a lot of potential there. And what about Theo Walcott coming into Southampton from Everton on a loan? Zach, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, no room in the Everton squad for him at this point. So uh, credit to Walcott for trying to get first team football. Yep, I agree. Okay, from Arsenal, um, Genduzi, not a surprise, had the fallout with Arteta on his way to Hertha Berlin on a season-long loan. They brought in Thomas Partey from Atletico Madrid for $45 million. Strong central midfielder, Ghanaian international, has been a mainstay in Simeone's Atletico team for the last few years. Good signing for Arsenal, right? Fantastic signing for Arsenal. I, I was saying in our last episode that it seemed as though you know Arsenal's big summer signing, Gabriel aside, was keeping Pierre and Mirka Um, But yeah, this is a fantastic. I was shocked when I saw that they got party for forty-five million. I think that he can do uh, a really good job in the Arsenal midfield. So I'm excited for that. Yep, sounds like he had a buyout clause in his contract, which is why they were able to negotiate mm-hmm. that low fee for him. But nice, True. nice, yep. nice work in the transfer market for Arsenal. Manchester United. Uh, knee-jerk reactions all round to the 6-1 loss. Edson Cavani on a free transfer. That would have been good five years ago. Um, Alex Tellez comes in on left at left back from Porto for $15 million. Ama Diallo on the right wing from Atalanta. He won't actually sign until January for $37 million. Um, uh, what, do you, what do you think about the incomings at Manchester United on deadline day? Oh, it's... <laughs> it's almost hilarious like it's it's Ole being like well I mean if we have more players then something will work right it's it's a quantity <laughs> over quality thing um yeah the, the the shout on Cavani of it being five years ago 
is is a very a, an important thing to mention. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Manchester United not it, you'd think is not going to be at a, a difficulty with with scoring goals and uh, yeah, who who the hell I I could I could see. I could see a situation coming about where Manchester United does not play the same starting 11 at any point this season for two matches in a row. Yeah, I could, I could totally see that. In fact, I actually think the best signing of these three is Tellez from Porto at left back because I don't think Luke Shaw or Brandon Williams is the answer there at left back. I think they've been found out a few times respectively. Uh, this guy is an assist machine puts the ball mm-hmm. into the box and can, can find strikers. He likes to go forward, but is also pretty astute defensively. So Probably the uh, the signing of the three for me is Tellez. Um, moving on, outbound for Manchester United, Chris Smalling did sign for Roma for $17 million. Not a surprise there. He's been on the outs at United for a while, headed back to Italy on a permanent transfer this time to Roma for $17 million. Everton, we mentioned the Robin Olsen goalkeeper signing to keep Pickford on his toes, so to speak. But Ben Godfrey, I love this signing from Norwich, as a right back for $20 million. Great potential and talent. He was really a shining star in the Norwich team last year. Mm-hmm. It, seem, it seems as though the one thing that Norwich did well last season was have good fullbacks. Now both of them have been bought, which is not, is not super positive for Norwich's um, hopes to bounce right back up to the Premier League next season. Yeah, I think Godfrey is... It's, it's, it's not only a good signing, but it's an intelligent signing by a very intelligent manager who knows that you know one good starting right back is not enough um and I, I think that you know with him with Dignier with uh I mean Decore like the the sides of that team are just bursting with both pace and skill so Everton going from strength to strength right now yep exciting time to be an Everton fan for sure um on to a team that is not exciting to be a fan of Newcastle United Rodrigo Vilca central midfielder from Deportivo Municipal in Peru for 250,000 pounds uh, this, this guy's a guy for the future. They've already talked about him going out, um, potentially playing with the youth team and with the, um, I think, under-23s, I think they were talking about. Um, could be the next Nobby Solano, maybe? Maybe because they're both Peruvian? Uh, I mean, it'll be interesting. Yeah, obviously can't know a lot about a player coming from uh, from Peru for, for such a small sum. It, there's a part of me that questions, you know, this whole like player for the future. I mean, he's already 21 years of age, which in, in football is, is not super young. Uh, that being said, you know, we've seen players burst into the premier league uh, for an, a, a sub $1 million fee. Uh, I'd say that N'Golo Conte is probably the most notable one in years past um, uh, as well as Riyad Mahrez actually on that same Leicester team. But yeah, we'll be exciting to see if he can, uh, you know, fit in. It, I assume it'll be a massive culture shock for him going from his his hometown to uh, in in Peru to, to North England. But you know, hopefully, yep. he fits in well. I'm excited to to keep an eye on him. Hopefully, Miggy can help him settle. He's he's had a similar experience, I would say. Sure, okay, on, yeah. on on to Fulham. Ruben Loftus Cheek on loan from Chelsea. I don't want to spend too long here, but I don't think that's the area of the field they needed to strengthen personally oh. for me. Um, Loftus-Cheek, decent player, lots of injury problems, has never really fulfilled his potential. Hopefully playing every week if he's fit will we'll, we'll benefit Fulham, will, remains to be seen. Finally, as away from the Premier League, one transfer that we thought was worth mentioning, Luis Suarez left Barcelona and went across to Atletico Madrid uh, for £5.5 million. Now he's getting on a bit, but nice signing for Atletico there and interesting to see the rebuild happening at Barcelona under Koeman. 
I, I don't know if you've read the quotes from, from Messi, but uh, it, it would be tough to make a man more furious than to not let him leave and then to sell his favorite strike partner and arguably best friend on the team for no money at all and sell him to your uh, biggest, one of your two biggest rivals in La Liga. So um, yeah, if, if, if it's mission infuriate Messi before letting him go, then Barcelona is checking off every single box they need to. For me, no player is bigger than any club. Um, Messi, pretty big head at this point. Maybe he deserves it a little bit. He's been very success, successful at the club. But he's already vocalized that he wants to leave. Why should they give a shit that Suarez is going to leave and his best friend is going to be leaving the club, right? They're in no full, re, full rebuild mode right now. Yeah, but okay, well, A, you're not getting any money for Suarez, so it's not as if you're, I mean, you're, you're freeing the wages, so I guess that's a, a fair point. Um, no player is bigger than the club, but also uh, Lionel Messi is far more important to Barcelona than, um, uh, than their manager, Bart Lameo. So I, I think that, or excuse me, manager, uh, president of the club, who is the man who has caused all these issues. So I think that Lionel Messi should his opinion should matter a lot more than a man who has single-handedly torn apart Barcelona. I guess so. I just, I just feel like Messi's already confirmed that he's on the outs. Why should they owe him anything at this point? They don't owe him. I just, I think it's a poor move for Barcelona. Take Messi out of the equation. I, I think it's, it's not I think Luis Suarez leaving. Absolutely. I hundred percent agree with that. It's, it's only okay. going to hurt, hurt them. I agree with that point. Yeah. All right. Well, that is a thank you for for giving that big roundup of the the transfer window dealings. Technically, we still have a, could have a few domestic loan signings going on, so maybe we'll have a few more to mention um, in our next episode. But uh, from there, we'll we'll take our second commercial break, and then we will come back and close it out with armchair pundits and ten in ninety. All right, welcome back to the False Nines. We're going to round things out here with uh, a quick segment um, on the top scorers in the in the Premier League right now. Armchair pundits, ten and ninety, and then Zach wants to add a little new segment in at the end, talking about our three matches that we're looking forward to most to round out the podcast this week. So, all right, I'll get right into it. EPL top scorers. We mentioned Dominic Calvert Lewin. Youngmin Son also has six goals. So joint top scorers at the top of the Premier League. Son having a great season as is Calvert-Lewin. Salah and Jamie Vardy have five. And then on four goals, maybe surprisingly, I would say here, Neil Mope and Newcastle's Callum Wilson, Zach. Any thoughts on uh, on any of those players? So, some surprises there, I would say? Uh, four players that you'd expect to be somewhere up there and then two players that you would not. Uh, I think that Mope has been uh, one of those in the right place at the right time strikers. He getting that goal on the weekend uh, against Everton was an example of that. Um, and Callum Wilson providing that poacher's instinct that Newcastle has waited years and years for. So really exciting. I, I think at, for a preseason preview, I think I marked Callum Wilson down for 15 goals uh, and he's on pace to break that. So long may that live. Yep. I think you're absolutely right. Okay, on to our next section, Armchair Pundits. For those that haven't heard this section before, Armchair Pundits is a section where we, me and Zach, like to make a wild allegation that you know, might be seen as a little bit you know, off the cuff or unlikely to happen, and then try and back it up with some facts or statistics. Why don't you go first this time, Zach? You have one prepared for us today? I do, yeah. And maybe this isn't the most audacious opinion, uh, but um, 
giving uh, a, an ode to my favorite player in the Premier League, Hyung Min Son, uh, I will make the declaration that Hyung Min Son is the best non-English player in Tottenham Hotspur club history. So, Ooh, wow. yeah, okay. uh, I, I, I'm, getting, I'm getting a little ruse out of you so far. Uh, right. So, so I was looking at some statistics, obviously, um, kind of back it up with some stats, and there were really, you know, only two other players, non-English players, again, you know, we, we've had Teddy Sheringham, we've had Jermaine Defoe, we've had Harry Kane, is, you, you could probably say Harry Kane's already the best player in Tottenham Hotspur history, um, but looking away from England is where it gets a little interesting, um, and so there were two other players that I thought might be in the conversation for best non-English, so foreign player in, in Tottenham Hotspur history. And those two players are Robbie Keane, who is an Irishman, and your countryman, Gareth Bale, who is obviously from Wales. Um, and so I wanted to look at the statistics for these three players. And so I'm keeping it super high level, just going to look at matches played, goals, and assists, as all three of these players are attackers. Um, so Robbie Keane, in his time for, for Tottenham, 305 matches, 122 goals, and 25 assists. So Keane, a, a center forward as they come, was not going to have a lot of assists. Um, but then we'll go to a winger. So somewhat similar and comparable to Hyung Min Son, Gareth Bale. Uh, Gareth Bale played 203 matches for Spurs. He had 56 goals and 58 assists. So just an extremely well-rounded player, as we know, and he's now back to Spurs, so we'll see if he adds to that tally. But then Hyung Min Son really impressed me with the way that he is comparable to both Keane in terms of goals and then Bale in terms of assists. So Hyung Min Son, in his time for Spurs, has played 235 matches, all right? That is 70 matches less than Robbie Keane. Now, Hyung Min Son has scored 92 goals for Spurs, which is only 30 goals less than Keane. So again, that's 70 less matches and only 30 less goals than a center forward, which really impressed me off the bat. Now, Hyung Min Son, when comparing him to Bale, he has played 32 more matches, so fairly comparable. And he's only eight goals, or excuse me, eight assists behind Bale. He has 50 to Bale's 58. However, the big stat there is that he has 36 more goals than Gareth Bale, 92 to Gareth Bale's 56. So in my mind, you know, 70 less matches than Keane. He's only 30 goals behind him in all competitions. Could very feasibly beat that this season, if not the next. And he's already ahead of Bale in goals by a significant margin and only eight assists behind him. So looking at the list of foreign players who have played for Tottenham Hotspur, you have the top foreign goal scorer in Robbie Keane, who will soon be overtaken by Son. And then you have Gareth Bale, the, you know, kind of complete package already overtaken in goals, soon to be overtaken in assists. Hyung Min Son is the best foreign player in Tottenham Hotspur history. I like that shout. It's a really good shout. There's two players I'd mention in there, but statistically, I don't think necessarily I could um, really counter your argument there. Jurgen Klinsmann didn't play anywhere near as many games for Spurs, but was very, very prolific in terms of goal scoring when he played there. I think he, he had probably less than 100 appearances for Spurs, but he banged in the goals for them there. Another player I thought who was a great player, but not, not a goal scorer necessarily, Ozzy Ardiles, commanding the midfield, went on to manage Spurs as well. Your dad probably remembers him, Zach. I'm up there in your dad's age ranger, so he probably remembers Ozzy Ardiles. But great player for Spurs back in the day. I'd give them to both a good shout too. 
Yeah, maybe the one small asterisk is best attacking foreign player in Spurs history, as I think you can also make a good case that Hugo Lloris is, is up there uh, amongst important players in, in Spurs history. But yeah, that's my that's my love letter to Young Minson. I'll, I'll start doing a weekly love letter because I, I love that player so much. But no, no more poetry, Zach, please. No more poetry. We won't go back to the poetry phase. Um, all right, Adam, <laughs> what, what's, your, what's your armchair pundits before we hop into 10 and 90? All right, I'm also sticking on the Spurs bandwagon here. Oh, I'm going to say okay. Spurs and Arsenal will both finish in the top four this season. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, so go for yep. it. Arteta, already two trophies under his belt, less than a year as manager. He's a great leader of the team. He got Obama Yang to sign a new deal, really sold him on that new deal. Lacazette seemed to have rediscovered his goal-scoring touch for the team. What I love about Arteta is he's not a yes-man. He doesn't take shit. Genduzi fell out with him and he thought Genduzi was a bad apple. He moved him along. Didn't, didn't kind of bring him back on board. He gave Xhaka another chance because the issue wasn't with him, but you burn bridges with Arteta. He'll let you know it. Um, so I've, I've been really impressed with him all round as a coach already. Arsenal right now in the season have the third best defensive record in the league. That was a problem area for them last season. They brought in Gabriel. They've already played Liverpool away in their first four games, and they still have the third best defensive record in the league. Um, so really, really impressed. They've made some strides there. Spurs are scoring goals for fun. We talked about Hyungman Son, Kane scoring. Um, they're joint top scorers in the league with Everton and Leicester. Mourinho obviously knows how to win in the Premier League. I think the key for them to make the top four is staying healthy, but they still have Gareth Bale to come in, who is the greatest player in the history of football. So our Lord and Savior Gareth Bale is going to come in and obviously going to score goals for fun as well. So Spurs and Arsenal for me, potential to both finish in the top four this season, especially with how topsy-turvy the league's been so far. Seems wide open to me. I love that. Yeah, I agree with that in every single way. Gareth Bale, the greatest player in the history of football, but not the best foreign attacker in the history of Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> Maybe a little bias on my part with that being lost, but <laughs> no, I, I love that. I love that Homer pick. Um, no, I, I mean, there's nothing that I disagree with there. I think that both of the North London clubs will challenge for if not make the top four um both have great summers both are you know starting the season off well so i like that yeah they'll be there or thereabouts for sure all right so 10 and 90 wrapping it up as per usual adam first or second this week uh i'll go first all right go for it all right question number one zach the top assister in the english premier league at present has six assists for the season which is three more than the next closest player who has six assists in the Premier League so far this season, Zach? That would be Harry Kane. It's absolutely Harry Kane. Very impressive, right? Yeah. Harry, talk about how center forwards are not assist makers and that Harry Kane is just like, hold my beer. <laughs> Adding a whole new dynamic to his game. It's been, been very impressive. Question number two. Who is most likely to win manager of the season out of these three following managers and why? Carlo Ancelotti, yep. Mikel Arteta, or Dean Smith. Oh, I love that. I love it. I was so sure you were going to say Graham Potter. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a shoo-in. Um, this is hypothetical, uh, not reality. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I think that uh, it, it would be Carlo Ancelotti. Um, I think that if Everton can make the top four or maybe even make like fifth, he would win it. Um, Dean Smith is in a similar situation to Chris Wilder last year where it's like, Maybe he should win it, but you're not going to win it finishing eighth. So, yeah, uh, but no, I like that one. 
Yep. All right. Question number three. Newcastle's Premier League top scorer last season was John Joe Shelby with six goals. As we mentioned, Callum Wilson has four in his first four games. How many will Wilson score this season? And how many games will it take for him to beat Shelby's tally of six from last year? Um, <laughs> that's, that's it. That's a good question. I think it'll take him three more games to break six. I think he'll get, I, I think he'll continue his really nice streak to begin the season, get two goals in his, or get three goals in his next three games. Um, okay. And then, yeah, I mean, I said he would end with 15. I think that he's obviously on pace for more, probably won't keep that up, but um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say 15 to 18 would be a really, really, I think realistic and also impressive season for him. Totally agree. I think that's a great call. Oh, right. Where will Sheffield United finish in the league this season? And will Rian Brewster be their top scorer? Ooh, you kind of took one of my questions there. Um, I think that he will because not a lot of other players can score. As In fact, only one player has scored for Sheffield United so far this season. I, I'd like to think that they stay up. I mean, I'm not terribly confident with that prediction, but um, let's say Sheffield United finishes 16th. Okay. All right, question number five. Oh my God, I'm so excited for this question. This was an amazing find that I had in doing some research last night. You're going to absolutely love this question. I've like set the stage for it now. It's going to be amazing. Wow. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Adebayo Akinfenwa was last, was last week quoted in the press as saying he would consider a post-footy career in the WWE. In that same interview... He said he would most like to chokeslam two current players that are playing football. One is in the Premier League, one is not. Who are the two players that Adebayo Akinfenwa would like to chokeslam? <laughs> That's wow. This might be this might be the best question that has ever been asked in, in many 10 and 90s. Oh, I wish I had seen this quote, but I'm almost glad that I didn't because I have no idea who the answer is to this question. <laughs> I, I will give you a clue. He picked okay. them because of their physical presence. One plays in Serie A, one plays in the Premier League. Okay, I now think I know the answer. Zlatan Ibrahimovic was the player that he picked in Serie A? Incorrect. Okay, um, I'll take one more guess there. Cristiano Ronaldo? Romelu Lukaku. Oh, interesting! Because he's huge. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. that would be a good that would be a good battle. And then yep. in the Premier League, physical prowess. Oh, I, it has to be Adama Traore. <laughs> I thought that too. It's actually Virgil Van Dyke. Is the, the so Ooh, Lukaku okay. and Van Dyke are okay. the two people he would most like to choke slam. Akin Fenwa is actually a Liverpool fan. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, okay. I didn't yeah, know that. That's, that's the whole Klopp thing at the end of oh, last that's season. That's where, where that comes the, from. Okay. Yep. yep. So gotcha. Van Van Dyke is where he went to with that. I like that. Wow. That was a fantastic question. I'm Thank glad. You. Thank that, you. Yeah. I'm glad that you found that. All right. Your Welsh word for the day, Zach, and I want you to pronounce this for me is spelled C-H-W-A-R-A-E. C-H-W-A-R-A-E. That would be Charish. <laughs> it's Chwarae. Oh, Chwarae, not even close. No. Chwarae means to play. Okay. Nice. Yeah, as in play footy. Remember on the last episode, I... I properly translated the Welsh word. I got pissed off, so I tried one that I thought would trip you up, and it did, so I was proud of this week. There you go. Yeah, you're defending your heritage like that. <laughs> um, 
Okay, cool. Great. Those, those were fantastic questions. So I'm going to go back to, to my roots here and, and get somewhat hypothetical uh, sure. with my questions. Um, so this, uh, my, my set of questions is focused on the transfer dealings that have taken place over the last couple of weeks. Um, so my first question to you, if we are looking at center midfielders, who do you think will have more goals slash assists this season? Uh, when on loan, Ruben Loftus cheek at Fulham or Ross Barkley at Villa? Ross Barkley, hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That was the one I agree with, but I had it written down, and then you disproved me as we went through the podcast, um, <laughs> uh, or you kind of answered it, I, I suppose. Um, and then the one that you did somewhat steal from me: How many goals will Ryan Brewster have uh, this season for Sheffield United? Less than ten. Yeah, I, yeah that ten would be pretty damn impressive. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Um, question number three, will Luis Suarez uh, in his two domestic matches against Barcelona this season, will he score over or under two and a half goals? Under, I don't think he's as prolific as he once was. And okay. I don't think that team is as creative as Barcelona is. Okay. All right. Nice. I, think that's a, a valid point. Um, okay, question number four. Um, Edinson Cavani at on loan or <laughs> on a free to Manchester United. Will he outscore? Um, excuse me. Will he outscore Bruno Fernandez this season? Bruno Fernandez is a midfielder, Zach. Uh, no, oh, because I'm well aware Fernandez is going to take the penalties and he'll score more than Cavani. Okay, good. And good man, you get good. the rub of the green with the refs every game. Yeah, that is a good point. Um, Okay, question number five, wrapping this up. uh, Which Mendy starts more games in the Premier League this season, Edward Mendy or Benjamin Mendy? (laughs) Uh, Oh, geez. Uh, okay, I'll go for Edward Mendy because he's a goalkeeper and why not? Yeah. He's less likely to get injured. <laughs> a fair point. Uh, but I was happy to see that there's another Mendy in the Premier League. So there you go. Um, had, had to bring that up. Um, okay, so uh, I, as I said, or as Adam mentioned, I uh, wanted to wrap up with a bit of a new kind of soundbite to close it out. Top matches you're excited for on the next match day. As we mentioned, um, no matches going on this weekend as we're on international break. But going into next weekend, what are the top three matches you're excited for, Adam? I'll start with Everton versus Liverpool at Goodison. Um, Merseyside Derby, Everton haven't beaten Liverpool in the league for 10 years. Last time they did was in 2010, a 2-0 victory at Goodison. Why not right now? Yeah, I I picked that one as my top one as well. I think that should be a great match. Um, uh, Match number two for you? City versus Arsenal. Um, Okay. Great games coming up that following weekend. So how far have Arsenal come away from home? Can they get anything at Manchester City? Do City still want it? Going to be a really intriguing game there. Yeah. I like that. I was going to say City Arsenal. I went with Leicester Villa because this will be a test for Villa. You know, can they do it two games in a, two matches in a row? Uh, Leicester needs to rebound desperately. So I think that that one could be a high scoring one um, in my mind. Could Villa be the last undefeated team in the Premier League? Zach? Oh my goodness, that'd be wild. Um, <laughs> cool. All right. So, so third match, which one are you excited for? Uh, Newcastle versus Man U. It's always 100%. a good game. Always a yeah. good game. Could we see Matty Longstaff come back from injury and score the winner again? It's at um, it's at Newcastle. So um, 
I feel like we always play pretty decently at home against Man U, usually shit the bed away from home. So it'd be, it'd be good to see them play well at St. James's Park and potentially get something from this against Bruce's old team. I put the same match down and it's, it's not exactly that I'm quote unquote super excited for it, but I think that this is a real test for Steve Bruce because the biggest criticism that pretty much everybody under the sun has lofted at him is that he gets terrified when going up against a top six team and just packs five at the back and it literally has never worked not for one second of any match so we see a Manchester United team somewhat ripe for the picking right now not playing with a lot of confidence Newcastle on the other side playing with a ton of confidence can Bruce finally figure it out and just throw men at Manchester United play for at the back actually try to attack I mean this is this is almost like the final test in my mind for him. Can, can he figure out the, the way in which he's continuously gone wrong? Is it a good time or a bad time to play them after they got spanked against Spurs? A uh, good time because they'll be without Martial. So, I mean, that's a man down. True story, but they'll be with Cavani on his debut. <sighs> True. Oh my. What if Cavani puts like seven <laughs> past Newcastle? Just proves us wrong. Should be, should be interested. Yeah, hopefully this doesn't come back to bite us. Yeah. Um, all right, Adam. Well, uh, a, a great episode today. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to um, recap those matches that we just mentioned and a few others. So until then, footy, footy.